here in Manhattan. It's Monday, January 22nd, and you're listening to our Variety News and Arts show, Monday Morning Side on WKCR. I'm your new host, Macy Hanslick-Baron. Though I know we miss Josh dearly, I'm so excited to be starting off 2024 with you all. We have a great show today. Uh, it'll have some poetry, a comprehensive interview with the leader of a nonprofit called The Remedy Project, and a new recurring segment called Third Places, followed by a lovely piece from our very own archives. Um, So thank you all once again for being with me here this morning. We are going to start everyone off today with a poetry reading by WKCR News and Arts contributor Ella Preciado. You will be hearing this poetry segment each week from here on out, so I hope you find um, that it's a lovely way to start off your Monday morning. Today, uh... I'll let her announce it for you. So enjoy, folks. Good morning. I am Ella Preciado, and I am very excited to read a poem for you all on this wonderful Monday morning. I chose White Eyes by Mary Oliver because it's a beautiful piece about winter and about wind, and it has definitely been very windy here in New York in the past week, so I thought that it would be fitting. So this is White Eyes. In winter, all the singing is in the tops of the trees, where the wind bird with its white eyes shoves and pushes among the branches. Like any of us, he wants to go to sleep, but he's restless. He has an idea, and slowly it unfolds from under his beating wings as long as he stays awake. But his big round music, after all, is too breathy to last. So it's over. In the pine crown, he makes his nest. He's done all he can. I don't know the name of this bird. I only imagine his glittering beak tucked in a white wing while the clouds which he has summoned from the north, which he has taught to be mild and silent, thicken and begin to fall into the world below like stars, or the feathers of some unimaginable bird that loves us, that is asleep now and silent, that has turned itself into snow. Thank you. That was White Eyes by Mary Oliver. Happy Monday. Alrighty, I hope you guys enjoyed that lovely start to our show. Um, And our next segment we have for you 
is uh, an interview with Anna Sigru, co-founder and co-director of The Remedy Project. So I'll get that started for you all. The Remedy Project um, has a presence here on Columbia's campus. Uh, so we'll get into that interview. I hope you all enjoy this lovely segment. Um, some really great information about a really fantastic organization and, and what they're doing in, in New York City and across the country. So enjoy. I'm here with Anna Sigru, co-founder and co-director of The Remedy Project. The Remedy Project, for those of you who do not know, is a nonprofit dedicated to advocating for the human rights of incarcerated individuals within the U.S. prison system. Anna is a Barnard College alum herself, and Anna, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to be with us here today. So to start us off, what first sparked your interest in prison reform and additionally the nonprofit sphere? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I am excited to talk to you today. And for the listeners, Macy is also a volunteer with the organization. And that's how she found out about our work. Um, she is part of the chapter that is based at, at Columbia and Barnard. So what first sparked my interest in prison reform? Um, I would say um, that it began in my freshman year at Barnard, actually. Uh, well, I, I always, um, I majored in urban studies and sociology, and I've always been someone interested in like social justice issues broadly, like since I was in high school and, and even middle school. Uh, but I, I didn't really know where that would take me. And um, I thought about my experience at, at Barnard and Columbia as one where I would explore some of those issues and, and contextualize some of the things that I had begun begun to learn in, in high school. And um, just kind of by happenstance, I ended up uh, with this organization in my freshman year of college called the Police Reform Organizing Project, or PROP, which is a uh, police reform organization based in, in New York City. Um, shout out to them. Shout out to Bob Ganji, who is the, <laughs> the executive director of PROP, who um, did a lot to support me early on in my professional development. Uh, and what PROP does is uh, trains people and sends people to do court monitoring in misdemeanor arraignment courts in New York City. Um, and arraignment, um, for those who don't know, is the first step into the legal system after you're arrested. So um, the like uh, arraignment courts and misdemeanor arraignment courts specifically are where you can see uh, exactly like who was arrested the day before and what they were arrested for for a misdemeanor charge. And the purpose of PROP was to expose the fact that um, that racist and discriminatory policing practices were happening. And the only way that you can really, you can't like follow cops around really, but you can see everything, like the, the results of what cops did yesterday in courts the following day. So we would sit in in the courtroom and um, and take take notes and keep track of who is being arrested for what. And I think the um, having that like really direct window into the criminal justice system um, was enlightening and and horrifying for me. And and I think sparked a now what might be like a career long investment in in tackling the like horrific like mess that is the, the criminal justice system. Uh, and it. Uh, certainly set me up in uh, at Barnard to start pursuing. There are a lot of things that are going on on, on Columbia's campus that have that have to do with you know, criminal justice reform more broadly, um, or like prison abolition, or um, like uh, prison education projects. And so I uh, took every opportunity that I could and um, ended up through all of that meeting David uh, Simpson, who is my co-founder and co-director. Um, and led to to the Remedy Project being founded and me continuing to do that to today. That's fascinating. And agreed, there is always a lot going on on Columbia campus in relation to that particular issue. Um, so again, the Remedy Project, as indicated in the name, uses the administrative remedy process really to help reform the prison system. So would you mind explaining the administrative remedy process to our listeners and why it is so important? Yeah, so the administrative remedy process um, is also no more broadly known as the grievance process uh, in prisons uh, across the country. And what it is, is, um, it, well, I'll start with the history. So in 1996, 
uh, the federal government passed a law called the Prison Litigation Reform Act. And the Prison Litigation Reform Act was a response to uh, a bunch of changes that were happening in the 90s in the prison system. So mass incarceration, as we know it, um, is something that folks tend to pin to have started in the 70s. Um, but from like the 70s to the early 2000s, the prison population in the United States like quadrupled. Um, and the 90s was a time when like a lot of that, um, the consequences of the prison population exploding was um, starting to reach courts and reach like the the Senate and Congress and reach the kind of like political arenas. And one such consequence was that the like civil and federal courts were being overwhelmed with lawsuits being filed out of prison on conditions issues, on um, like rights abuses, on neglect and all sorts of things, all the types of things you might imagine one could file a lawsuit against the government about. Uh, and the federal government's response to this overwhelming amount of of lawsuits wasn't what you might think, which is like, huh, like why are so many people suffering so much inside of prison? Um, and instead they instituted this thing called the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which mandated that um, the law says explicitly that uh, in order for a lawsuit filed by an incarcerated person to be heard in court, they must first exhaust all of their available administrative remedies. Um, and the and and thus the administrative remedy process. Um, these processes existed before in prison. There, there, but they were before the PLRA. Just ways to informally resolve uh, an issue that is like institution level. So, say you like um, really felt like you needed to change your cell because you were having an issue with your cellmate. Like that would be something that you would use the administrative remedy process for because that's an issue you're having with the institution that isn't necessarily like something that you bring to court. Um, but now after the PLRA, after 1996, um, any any issue, whether it's you want to change your cell to you were assaulted by a guard or you are um, not getting insulin for your diabetes and you're getting a sore in your foot, um, like any type of range of issue um, or like a light falls uh, from the ceiling and hits you in the head um, and, and disables you any of those things you have to use the administrative remedy process or a grievance process in the prison before you can bring that that case to court um and what this means uh is that um i mean it's just like a a massive like disenfranchisement uh, i think of of incarcerated people where um, the grievance process has to be um it says in the law and the um the law that governs the administrative remedy process, at least in the, in the federal system, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is where the remedy project does most of their work. Um, it says that you are not allowed to, um, like no one else is allowed to prepare it on your behalf. Um, it has to or, or submit it on your behalf. They can help you prepare it, but it's something that the incarcerated person has to submit for themselves to the institution, which puts up um, a lot of barriers for people to be able to um, actually like like articulate their rights or get their needs resolved, both because it's a difficult, it's a very difficult process to navigate, um, especially if you can imagine dealing with everything else that comes with being incarcerated. It's like, it's not easy to figure out the, like the, and the rules about how you're allowed, how you're supposed to write it and like how things are supposed to be phrased and all this. It's like incredibly complicated. And then on top of that, there's no outside accountability or even inside accountability really to this process. And uh, the prisons have truly no incentive to follow the, the rules and regulations of this process. In fact, they have a lot of incentives not to because if you um, if an incarcerated person is grieving about something that would require that the prison spend more money or change the way that their 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 status quo um, or maybe punish one of the correctional officers, these are all things that they have no interest in doing. And so administrative the the um, administrative remedy process is on top of being complicated to use hindered, um, incredibly hindered, and people are actively retaliated against for using it also. Um, so, um, it's, we believe at the Remedy Project that it's, um, it's important for people like what we do. And I think we'll probably get to this more in the interview, but what we do is 
is provide that, try to provide that outside accountability. Um, and by, we have direct lines of communication with folks. We help them prepare properly prepare remedies and we keep track of the remedy and the person as it's being submitted and going through the process so that it can't be ignored or hindered or they can't be retaliated against. Um, and it's a way for people's like immediate needs to get met um, and potentially um, what we hope a way to draw more attention to the like admit like the human rights abuses that are happening in prisons across the board um, and help people come go to the courts to get those those um, problems more formally resolved and like lead to policy change or um, you know wider more systemic changes to like the the way that we are treating people in the 1.5 million people who are in prison in the United States yeah Absolutely. So again, you touched on the point that I was about to bring up, but about why this process is so widely inaccessible and also um, used improperly very often, because I'm sure that incarcerated people are not walked through the process um, mm -hmm. in prison, nor given uh, advice or, as you said, to navigate the complicated aspect of this uh, process. So again, the Remedy Project does help directly with the remedies, but you also have um, a public advocacy approach. So there is like a multifaceted remedy advocacy versus public advocacy. So if you could expand a little more on that and why it's so important, again, to to shed light on this alongside actually helping with the remedies themselves. Yeah, totally. Um, just one more point that I would add that, that what you were saying just, just made me remember. Um, David, who is our, our co-founder, again, he... Um, like he did not even know that the administrative remedy process existed until at least two years into his tenure incarceration. So like even like knowing like they, it's not only that they don't teach you, they don't even tell you that it exists. Uh, so, yeah, it's yeah, I think all all that I said before, I think it's like really important to um, to even just remind people and and revive this tool uh, for, for articulating your, your rights. Absolutely. Um, so you asked about remedy advocacy and public advocacy. So, yeah, so the remedy project has a, has a two-pronged approach to alleviating the crisis that we see inside of prisons, um, for people's civil and human rights. And the first one is remedy advocacy, which is what I basically already explained before, which is that we uh, have direct contacts with people who are in federal prison. Uh, and we, uh, those folks, we sign them up as members into the organization. We have like a member-based uh, model. They sign up um, and signing up as a member means that they um, give us some um, basic information and, and send us um, pre-signed forms if they're able. And then whenever they have an issue that comes up, they send it to us and we do our best to prepare um, the the remedy um, on their behalf. Uh, also, I think the thing that very important part of the organization that I haven't fully mentioned yet is that all of the volunteers um, and even some of like the leaders in our organization are all students, uh, are all college and some high school students. Um, the Remedy Project is a like student and and youth run organization. So the um, the advocacy model is built and managed by uh, mostly formerly incarcerated folks who have direct experience with how to navigate this process from the inside. That's um, where more David comes in. Um, and then the, the people who are doing the work are students um, like Macy here and, and other students at Columbia, at, at um, Barnard, at, we have students at Yale, at um, Binghamton University, um, and at a high school out in Colorado, we're working with some students. Um, and so these students advised by formerly incarcerated folks will prepare remedies on behalf of our incarcerated members. And the hope is, um, or the goal of the remedy advocacy is, and there, there are many, the many faceted kind of, there are many, I think, like, positive things that can come out of, of like, that I think I've alluded to so far that can come from helping someone through this process. But our main goals are twofold, um, which is to try to actually get the person's um, needs met um, and to create a 
like paper trail for this person's um, issues. Um, and that connects directly to public advocacy, which is the other aspect of the organization, which is all also entirely student-run, student-led. So the remedies themselves um, don't have the might not have like the power that they need in, in order to actually like convince a, a prison administrator, a correctional officer to um, go against their their the culture that they have, the mindset that they have, the instinct that they have to to hinder or ignore or not properly address people's complaints. Um, like even uh, it being properly filed and it has like our, um, our header, like they know that it's coming from an outside organization that sometimes isn't enough to make uh, a prison administrator treat the the person or the process any differently. So the goal of public advocacy um, is to primarily bring public attention to the story of the person who we're advocating for, of, of what, what they're experiencing and what they're asking for, and encouraging those our students and the people that are supporting us to take actions on behalf of those specific individuals to put pressure on the institution to actually address the thing that that uh, we're asking for. Um, on top of that, what public advocacy does, um, also what kind of I alluded to earlier, um, is we're building a public, like basically database of stories of um, of what folks are experiencing in prison, and we're hoping to bring public attention, public awareness to the, the human rights crisis that is happening behind bars that is like, if you look at the whole, the whole like landscape of criminal justice reform right now, um, prisoners' rights and, and like the conditions every day inside of prisons is actually what we see is like a very neglected part of that picture. Uh, and bringing and and we think in order to like actually make a substantial change in the this system, um, bringing attention and bringing like the conditions conditions issues to the fore is like a really necessary part of breaking these like cycles of um, violence and criminalization and um, like <laughs> like despair that the criminal justice system creates. Uh, and the public advocacy part of what we're trying to do is is bring attention to that that mm -hmm. like hole in in that landscape um, in order to encourage people more broadly to care about what's going on inside prisons and put pressure on policymakers and legislators to um, take the like these issues really seriously uh, in a ways that they aren't now. Mm hmm. Um, and for listeners that are interested, a lot of those stories can be found on the remedyproj.org. If you are interested in following along with some of these um, incarcerated people's journeys. And I just wanted to follow up asking to how have you found that incarcerated individuals um, become aware of the remedy project and organizations that are available to help with this process? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, first of all, the Remedy Project is the only organization that is helping folks um, with, uh, at least in, in federal prison, helping people with their administrative remedies. Um, and as far as we know, um, we are the only organization out there that is um, exclusively dedicated to free support for uh, folks navigating administrative remedy and grievance processes. Uh, and how folks find out about us is actually, it's a funny story. We um, when we started trying to do this advocacy work for folks, uh, we wanted to start small because we were a small organization. We didn't have that much capacity, uh, but we wanted to to prove that what we were doing could work and and was something that that folks were interested in in like a a need that needed to be met. And so uh, David and I were the plan was to do a pilot out of a halfway house. Actually, a halfway house is like. It's exactly what it sounds like, where it's um, a place where folks in the federal system are required to live for uh, normally several months between when they leave prison and when they go back home. Uh, and so these folks are 
in a, they're not in a prison, but they're in a Bureau of Prison facility. Um, they are, you know, under the control of officers and guards. There are things that happen to them that are grievable um, and they still are under the purview of like administrative remedy processes and in, in these situations. And so we thought that this would be a perfect place for us to pilot our advocacy because um, folks are, are, they're easier to get in contact with, but they're, you know, they still have all of the kinds of concerns um, and use the same process. So we went to a halfway house that's in Brooklyn here um, and and flyered and talked to people and gave out our information. And we got no bites. <laughs> we the I think the um, halfway house in the end of the day was actually not a very good place for us to pilot what we were doing because it's so people are so transient and and there aren't really as many issues happening there as there are in prisons. But what happened was we got in contact with one man who um, was living there who was like, oh, this looks great. And then he, he gave us a call and he was like, I really like what you're doing. I want to get involved. I'd love to volunteer. I also told three of my buddies who are still in prison about what you guys are doing. And that is the only advertising we've ever done. And now we have over 550 um, members in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, that's on our contact list. Um, and they, as far as we know, it, it spreads entirely through word of mouth. So we send, when people sign up with the organization, we send them um, like a welcome packet. And what David believes is that people um, just like copy those uh, in prison and distribute them out. And um, and you can see that when we when we have a new person reach out to us, from a particular facility later that week we'll get like at least like five new signups from that same facility so it's it's like a word of mouth kind of situation yeah um, that's, that's a good cool. question and shows how much of a need there is for this type of work clearly um yeah so you've mentioned too that the remedy project works extremely closely with former incarcerated individuals as volunteers and employees um including co-founder david simpson so can you just mm -hmm and on the importance of having formerly incarcerated people on your team? Yeah, definitely. So the um, one of the reasons that we, um, why we think there's such a need here around the, like the administrative remedy process um, specifically and why there aren't um, any organizations, like, like the reason David decided to, to start this organization um, and how he, part of the reason how he got me on board uh, was that he realized that there weren't any organizations helping people with um, administrative remedies or grievances. And there, um, the, there are like some folks out there who do help. It's like um, there are like prisoners rights, like law firms and things and lawyers that help. But the thing that about the administrative remedy process or these grievance processes is they are um, so like how to navigate the process um, is so dependent on the like the the culture and the mindset of the institution and there there are these things that happen to folks that um get in the way of them being able to properly file something that um really you can only like understand or advise someone about how to navigate that process if you've experienced being incarcerated yourself um and so lawyers actually struggle with helping people they they understand the law and the um, statutes that dictate how the process is supposed to work, but the process doesn't work like by the statutes, right? There are like these unwritten laws and and ways in which that people, prison administrators and correctional officers are actually using um, and telling people how to use this uh, this process in practice. Um, and so, uh, having the formerly incarcerated folks on the team is like it's the all of the training that students get about how to do this process comes directly from them um and our training process uh is um it is partially just like teaching people how to actually write the remedies but it's a lot of it is actually about how to understand the the mindset of folks who are incarcerated and the mindset of people who are who are um officers or administrators within um a prison mm -hmm. Um, and the the um, uh, uh, formerly incarcerated folks, besides just doing training, are also an integral part in kind of they're almost like translators for uh, students. So we have 
Um, we have students who manage all of our communication with um, our incarcerated members. They can communicate by uh, an email service that is um, through the Bureau of Prisons or through the mail. Uh, and the students will uh, receive the emails or receive the mail and um, scan it and log it. And But then there are often many things in these emails that they don't fully understand. And so it's our formerly incarcerated team members who are translating like what it is someone is trying to say and also advising a student about how to respond to that person and give them the correct advice. Um, and all of these things are uh, like are things that like questions, how to answer questions and how to understand what people are saying. It's all really like you need the knowledge of having been incarcerated in order to in order to properly like advocate for the folks that we're trying to advocate for. Yeah, absolutely. It is really helpful to have such a diverse team like that. So now we're going to talk about the other end. Um, you've recently started university chapters, one at uh, Columbia itself. Can you mm -hmm. see why student engagement and particularly the attitude that you find on college campuses is so crucial for this issue? Yeah. Uh, so I think a couple of ways that I can answer this question. Um, but the reason why we organize students and work with students um, is like the, the primary reason is that uh, students have our um, passionate and have the protection of their institution uh, in a way that so, uh, like David, basically when David wanted to start the Remedy Project, um, he tried to start doing it himself. He, he was continuing to do, help people file remedies once he was released from prison. Um, and then shortly after he was released, he was reincarcerated um, for uh, an offense that is it, it, like the way in which he was rearrested and reincarcerated um, was not legal, really. Um, he was living at a halfway house and he um, was 15 minutes late past his curfew. Um, he had a note from the, he was actually coming from a Columbia class where I met him and he had a note from the professor that explained why he might be late. Um, it was just like the subway was delayed on his way back. Um, and the uh, when this happened twice um, that he was late past his curfew and the second time federal marshals picked him up out of his bed and put him in prison. Um, and being violating curfew is not a reincarceratable offense and and it also like he had all of the proper documentation for why um, it, the curfew was violated and it was only by about 15 minutes each time. So and he interpreted that. Um, and I think from from what I've learned over the years, um, I can concur that this was retaliation. He was being retaliated against for continuing to do this type of advocacy. So he learned pretty quickly that. Um, or he learned really the hard way that he couldn't champion this work himself. Like he and other formerly incarcerated folks could not be the people doing this work. Um, and uh, it was at this time that David and I were becoming friends. And, and I was um, looking for, I think, like a lot of uh, college students, I think, looking for a way to um, take all of the things that I was learning and all of like the kind of indignation about the state of the world that I was developing and apply it to something actually like tangible and to feel like I was like actually doing something that like affected someone's life or made a difference in the world. And it seemed kind of like a, a, a match made in heaven where uh, we took the, this, the passion and the, um, like the this like indignation and also the time and the excitement of college students like I was at the time um, with you combine that with also this like this protection from being retaliated against from from being um, a target of of like a direct target of arrest or reincarceration, which David still is because he's on probation. Um, and if you know anything about probation, it means that there are a lot of rules and regulations that he has to be careful not to violate. Otherwise, he could end up back in prison again. Um, and so, yeah, that's we work with students basically for those two reasons. Um, and uh, we also um, the idea is to be able to, in order to like really make a change in prison conditions in this crisis that we see in prisons, uh, we need to build like a movement of people who are uh, advocating for folks and you know, who are paying attention to these issues. Um, and I mean, students are um, especially like 
young folks like me, I mean, I'm only 25 today, we're all so um, uh, connected and so invested in these sorts of issues. Like it just felt like the natural place to uh, begin trying to build like a movement around around the 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 rights and um, and dignity and humanity of um, our our folks who are behind bars. Um, yeah, and we've started with uh, like any student anywhere could join the organization and we organize people kind of through Zoom meetings and kind of in a national sense. And now we still do that, but we are transitioning to what you mentioned um, chapters at universities so that people are organizing with each other and are holding each other accountable and are building relationships with each other around these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've done a fantastic job so far. And clearly, again, word of mouth can be useful there as well. I think that mm -hmm. news travels fast about organizations like this, again, in college settings. So just briefly, if you could tell us what are the next steps for the Remedy Project, just to, to close this out today. Yeah. I mean, it's like grow, grow, grow. We have, um, we are we have everything we need, I think, to to do to like fulfill like the vision that we have, which is to really make a fundamental difference in um, both the lives of the people that we're supporting, and I think systemically we have the opportunity to really um, to change the the mindset and the culture of of the way that that folks are treated inside, and to um, I think dramatically, potentially dramatically affect. Um, the way that the the business of incarceration is done, uh, and but what we what we need is like more people, more resources, um, and 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 we'll hit the ground running. So yeah, our our plan is to to push and to grow. And um, if any of you listening are excited about about what we're doing, um, and if you want to volunteer, if you want to participate in any way. Um, and I'm sure Macy will mention this too, but you, uh, if you go to our website, um, more specifically, if you go to our action website, which is action.theremedyproj.org, you can sign up to uh, receive our news newsletters, receive our action alerts about uh, our, our members, um, read their stories, and um, join this, this movement that we're trying to build of... of um, that we are building of, of folks who are are fighting for the the lives of our of folks um in in prison in the united states yeah absolutely so great thank you so much for your time uh once again this was anna sagru co-founder and co-director of the remedy projects uh as you just heard anna mention if you want to learn more about this organization or how to get involved you can visit theremedyproj.org thank you again all right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that fantastic segment with The Remedy Project. For those of you just turning in, you are listening to WKCR-FM New York and WKCR-HD. That is 89.9 on your dial or WKCR.org if you're listening online. Today, you're here with me for Monday Morning Side, our variety news and arts show. Uh, so our next segment um, for today, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on the importance of prison reform to the Columbia community um, to follow our interview with the Remedy Project. And I'm going to discuss briefly Columbia's 2015 prison divestment reform. For any listeners unaware, in 2015, Columbia University became the first school in the U.S. to divest from private prisons. This entailed the offloading of shares in G4S and the CCA, the Corrections Corporation of America, the divestment movement was started entirely by students who vigilantly campaigned for this cause for over a year. Um, and I will read a quote from former president, Lisey Bollinger, regarding the eventual divestment. Quote, on March 31st, 2015, ACSRI, which is the Advisory Committee on Social Responsible Investing and, uh, at Columbia, resolved to recommend to the trustees that the university divest any direct stock ownership interests in companies engaged in the operation of private prisons and refrain from making subsequent investments in such companies. I support this recommendation, which represents the culmination of thoughtful analysis and hard work by the ACSRI and by our students, faculty, and alumni. The recommendation will be taken up by the university's trustees at the next scheduled meeting in June. 
So once again, that is from back in 2015, but again, to show that the prison reform movement is very present here on Columbia's campus. The Remedy Project is a fantastic organization. They're doing some great work. So our next segment for today, as I mentioned earlier, is a new and recurring segment called Third Places. For a little background on myself and why I've decided to, uh, decided to start this segment, this is my first year at Columbia University. I'm part of the dual bachelor's program with Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Um, upon arriving in Morningside Heights, I found myself having to rediscover my third places. And for anyone who has never heard this term before, a third place is a sociological term coined by Ray Oldenburg in his book, Great Good Place. This term refers to a place which is neither your home, which is considered your first place, nor your workplace or school environment, which is considered your second place. Oldenburg lists eight characteristics that make up a quality first place. Neutral ground, so people frequenting this place because they wish to. A leveling place where there are all walks of life. Conversation is the main appeal. These places are accessible physically. They have regulars. They maintain a low profile have a lively atmosphere, and provide a similar feeling to the comfort of home. So countless psychologists recognize the merits of third places for relationship building and making new connections. Especially in this era with the advent of online work and school, the prevalence of third places in everyday life is becoming less and less frequent. Many of these places were shut during COVID as well. I think the effects of that period are taking a very long time to wear off, but I can guarantee everyone craves the comfort of a third place from time to time. It's only human. Especially in a city as large as New York, having a third place can be crucial, whether that's a sports club, cafe, or a museum. And the key factor of third place is community. But how exactly do you find one? And again, that is the the tricky task that I was confronted with earlier this year. So with this segment, I'm hoping to help you all find your third place if you haven't already or are looking for a new one. Maybe you're new to Manhattan, new to Morningside Heights. Um and I hope to bring some light to the special places within our own neighborhood. So in the future, I hope to carry out this segment in more of an interview style, so I'll, I'll be having members of the community come in and speak about their third place. But to start us off, I myself will be delving into a Morningside Heights staple third place, which is the Hungarian pastry shop. Um, upon walking into what Morningside Heights residents affectionately call Hungarian, you are met with a guaranteed queue, intimate tables, and the smell of fresh coffee. Though I was intimidated at first by the line, I decided to see what the buzz was really about. The cafe sits across from the beautiful St. John the Divine Church on Amsterdam Avenue. Hungarian is a writer's haven, with pictures of books written there pasted on the walls, not just novels, but a vast array of genres. There is no Wi-Fi, so you will see countless people scribbling in notebooks. The baristas beam at the regulars and spark up conversation, ensuring that the mailman would like his usual and giving him a letter to post in return. This establishment has been around since the 1960s and was passed down from the Hungarian Sraras family to the Greek father and son duo Panagiotis Binyoris and Philip Binyoris. One wonders if they knew how special it would turn out to be. Hungarian is emblematic of a third place, a bustling scene where you will always see a familiar face, whether there to socialize or hole up in the corner and finish your thesis. So I hope you all enjoyed that brief segment um, on the Hungarian pastry shop, and we'll be exploring some more third places throughout the next couple months. So tune in if you're interested in learning about some of the great community spots we have here. To close us out today, we have a segment from the archives. This is a conversation between the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at Columbia University and the Fortune Society, which is a nonprofit supporting reentry for formerly incarcerated people and alternatives uh, to the prison industry. So tying into what we were hearing about earlier, a bit of a different perspective on that. Um, I hope you all enjoy this lovely conversation. Uh, it's a great way to, to learn about another really prominent organization here. Enjoy. Welcome to Late City Edition, WKCR-FM New York. I am Beth Fisher Yoshida. I am the Academic Director of the Master of Science Program in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at the School of Continuing Education, Columbia University, and also co-chair of what we call AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity. We are a consortium that is interdisciplinary, and we work around Columbia University in the areas of conflict, peace, 
and uh, sustainability, working on research, education, and practice initiatives. And today we have with us here three people. We have Claudia Cohn, who's the Associate Director of the ICCCR. She will give you a little bit more information on that in a moment. We have Stanley Richards, who is Senior Vice President of Fortune Society, and he will also tell you a little bit about Fortune Society. And we have Research Assistant Rebecca Neshkis here to talk about the Participatory Action Research Project that has been ongoing between the ICCCR and the Fortune Society. So, uh, Claudia, can you tell us a little bit about the ICCCR? Sure, Beth, thank you. So the ICCCR, we, we are fond of um, multiple uh, letters that, uh, that are the same, so we like lots of Cs, uh, and it stands for the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. It's a cert we offer a series of courses and a certificate in cooperation and conflict resolution at Teachers College. We offer courses to people who wish to pursue conflict resolution as a uh, concentration, but we also invite people from all disciplines and all over Columbia University to come and take some of our courses. And we also have a, a, a very active uh, basic research program under Peter Coleman, who is the director of the center. Thank you. And Stanley, would you like to say a little bit about Fortune Society? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of this show. Uh, Fortune Society is an organization that's been around since 1967. We provide services for formerly incarcerated men and women returning home from prison and jail. And we provide alternatives to incarceration for young people. Our mission is to support successful reentry and advocating for alternatives to incarceration, then strengthening the communities by which people go return to. So we see about 3,000 people, and we provide a range of services, including housing, outpatient substance abuse treatment, mental health services, crisis intervention, family reunification. We consider ourselves a one-stop shopping center for people who want to build new lives. Okay, great. So I think, Rebecca, you can chime in when we start talking about the project, too. So then if uh, you can tell us a little bit about how this project came to be between the ICCCR and Fortune Society. Well, maybe I'll start, and, and Stan can chime in, because mm -hmm. he has some of the history that preceded me. Uh, the, the two organizations have actually worked together in, in various ways uh, for probably the last decade. Um, the Fortune Society was uh, represented uh, uh, part of the uh, student population of a course that we teach, um, and worked together collaboratively that way, and that uh, evolved into a um, a research project uh, called the light bulb study, which Stan could say more about, um, but resulted in some training and some um, inquiry uh, around some of the internal practices at, at Fortune. Mm -hmm. And then a small group of us worked with Fortune uh, on creating two toolkits. This was also in collaboration with uh, John Jay College. Uh, and these were two areas uh, with funding from the Department of Justice, and these were two areas that Fortune is viewed as being uh, exemplary. One had to do with how they managed to create the Fortune Academy 10 years ago in uh, West Harlem, and the other is their policy of hiring formerly incarcerated men and women mm -hmm. uh, to be staff and ultimately leaders um, in, in the organization. I had the privilege of um, meeting up with... Um, uh, with Joanne. Uh, yep, Joanne Page. Who Joanne Page, our CEO. thank you. I'm sorry, a mm -hmm. CEO for the uh, last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And she um, suggested that it was time for the ICCCR and Fortune to work together again. And we brainstormed a little bit, and out of that came the notion that while the Fortune Academy, which is the supportive residential housing we'll be talking mm -hmm. a little bit more about, while it was clear that there were many dramatic success stories and had a very good, has a very good reputation within the residential housing community, that she and some of the other leaders, including Stanley, wanted help in, or at least uh, maybe a, a, a focal point for uh, documenting and understanding what makes what makes the um, the Fortune Academy successful and really posing the question, not assuming that it is, but posing the question how the culture of the academy impacts on the success of men and women when they've left, when they've left the supportive housing um, space and re-entered society. 
So I'll let maybe yeah. Stan and Rebecca and, jump in. And as an organization, Fortune Society is always, I would consider Fortune sort of a learning organization. We're an organization you know, that's been around since 1967, and we've developed a degree of expertise on certain issues, but we never feel like we're an organization that got it and has arrived. Uh, issues are always evolving. The needs of our clients are always evolving. And as an organization, we always want to look for opportunities to sort of examine what we're doing and to look at what we're doing compared to best practices and what we can learn and what we could um, push up against. And so our work with Columbia has gone, as Claudia said, has been over many, many years starting with the light bulb project and the light bulb project was a project between Columbia and Fortune where we looked uh, we engaged some of our staff members and engaged staff around leadership um, how to develop leadership up through the ranks uh, from you know reception counselors uh, through management and so uh, it's been a long engagement and it's been an exciting engagement and we've learned a ton and we'll get to talk a little bit about that throughout this interview. Mm-hmm. Actually, I remember that I was actually part of the Lightbulb Project yes. all the way back, and it emerged from one class that is an advanced practicum, yeah. and the focus of the class is for students to be able to engage with a nonprofit organization in the neighborhood and to bring the organizational learning that they have through their coursework to an organization and work together in collaboration to come up with whatever the organization finds relevant to work on at that time, especially around organizational structure and processes and practices and so on. Mm-hmm. And the light bulb name actually emerged from mm-hmm. the group itself. We didn't come in saying we're going to do a light bulb project. That That's was something right. that emerged from the group. Very good. So if you can tell us a little bit about the team, how the team was assembled in this new iteration or more recent iteration of what you've been doing together. Mm-hmm. Um, the one of the interesting things about our project is that we the participatory part of participatory action research is that we don't research we don't do research on an organization we do research with the organization so we have a research team composed of people from teachers college um, which includes faculty um, students and staff and then we have a team we work with a team from fortune which includes senior leadership um, current and former clients and also uh, staff members. So we have a lot of different perspectives in the room and we tackle problems and develop questions with those multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. And One of the other things that's exciting to me about participatory action research is that you go into it asking who your stakeholders are. So not only are there multiple perspectives that come together in studying the problem or addressing the issue, but you're also thinking about who the knowledge that you're going to create together, who's going to care? So we knew that from the beginning that uh, the Fortune Academy was one such stakeholder because, as Stanley said, they're a learning organization. They wanted to emphasize their best practices and look for areas where perhaps they could meet the residents' needs in even in a more innovative or newer ways. We also see our see funders and other. Uh, agencies and organizations who run supportive housing as stakeholders because what we find uh, can be potentially replicated elsewhere um, and the model is quite unique. Um, Also we see the general public as being one of the stakeholders because there are some remarkable transformations that happen at the Fortune Academy and we wanted do want to provide both more qualitative data about the experiences of clients and staff along with archival data around documentation and what fortune says and you know has stood for but also we're looking to uh, collect some hard quantitative data about recidivism rates after people leave the experience to speak to those uh, in the community who are most concerned about public safety so we feel there are multiple uh, opportunities for learning and multiple uh, stakeholders who who we can speak to. Right, and that and uh, j- that was a really exciting part for us in terms of the participatory research, and, and that most often you see researchers coming into communities and they f- 
are going to find out about what's going on and provide the community with the particular solution. And there's really a disconnect between the researchers and the community in which is being researched or evaluated. This is really about participation on multiple levels. And it's not about researchers coming in. It's about us as a group developing a set of questions, developing a set of metrics that we want to measure, and developing a process that's really inclusive. And uh, it's been an amazing process. We had our clients involved in it. Uh, from the very beginning, um, and that's been very exciting for us. So it's great. It sounds like you honor the fact that everybody has something to contribute and everybody has knowledge, and it depends on how you define knowledge, and that it's not that you're doing things on people but actually with people and organizations. Mm -hmm. So that's telling a little bit about the process and the practice that you use, and I'm curious, what are some of the goals of mm -hmm. the project that you're working on together? Okay. So uh, our umbrella questions, one way of thinking about it, is, as I sort of alluded to, is look what are the policies what is what are, what is the philosophy the policies and the lived practices of the fortune academy and how do they impact on the success of residents when they re-enter society i don't think i fully appreciated at the beginning how complex that question is <laughs> one of the goals is as we said to document the culture um, and we've done that by conducting interviews with the leadership team. We've looked at all kinds of supporting documentation from HR manuals to annual reports uh, to capture the philosophy. And Rebecca's been responsible for crunching a lot of the data to look for themes that we can um, document and share with others. Um, and we've, but let me stop there for a moment because um, I think one of the, the points that's, that's important uh, to make or a place that we might want to go briefly is that um, in documenting the culture, our process in the meetings, so our goals are, you know, this documentation and also learning something about what's unique uh, about the impact that this culture has on residents. And one of the things that we note from the very beginning is although Fortune doesn't um, screen its the Academy doesn't screen its residents on the basis of their record, which is, we've come mm -hmm. to learn, quite unusual. That most housing, and Stan could, mm -hmm. s s could back me up on this, but most yes. supportive housing um, excludes certain people because they feel it would be too difficult to manage and that it would uh, inf um, impact on safety. That's not the case with the Academy, and yet incidents of violence are extremely rare. Um, and most of the, in the incidents are actually threats, not not full-out incidents. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So as conflict resolution and cooperation researchers, we are very interested in trying to understand what about the culture may be allowing people who have violence in their history, who grew up in environments where that was the way that you got things done, to come to this environment and learn to, to operate differently. So that is a good place to pause. So Stan, if you could tell us a little bit more about, I think if my memory serves me correctly, it's a zero zero mm -hmm. tolerance policy, if you can tell us a little bit about that, and I remember it being remarkable at how little violence, or if none, there is there, if you could tell us yeah. about that. Uh, and so, you know, as Claudia said, we, we don't screen based on crimes. Um, if someone is in need of housing, we screen based on whether or not they want to be in a program. We define our housing as a program first, housing second. And so we require people to be engaged in 35 hours of productive activity, whether it's drug treatment, education, employment people giving back to the larger community. Everyone has community service, 10 hours of community service work. And then we have what we call AMPM and community meetings where people come together, start the day, close the day, and then build a culture around the house. The one thing that would get you discharged from the program is the threat of violence or violence. And what we try to show people is that there are another way, there are other ways to live beside violence. That's the way you survived in prison. You don't need to survive that way in a community. And so we describe the Fortune Academy as a a laboratory where people can practice to trust people, where people can practice to be vulnerable, where people can tra tra practice to manage and hurt and disappointment in an environment that's very supportive. And so that's the umbrella question around culture, and then it's around successful, how does that lead to successful lives on the outside when people leave the academy? 
Can you give us one example, perhaps, of another way of expressing frustration or dissatisfaction other than violence that you may explore with some people in the housing there? Oh, absolutely. Every Thursday, we have a Thursday evening community meeting where we meet with all of the residents, Joanne Page, myself, David Rothenberg, who's the founder of uh, Fortune Society. And it's their meeting. It's a community meeting. And so they get to raise all kind of issues. And the power in them being able to say, hey, this policy that that's implemented right now we don't really like well I don't like that this happened you know and I just want to put it out there because I want to be able to talk about it that's the beginning of when people learn that they could voice to have the power first of all to voice their concern about a particular issue and that people listen to them and value what they have to say and so in that process they learned hey I don't need to go and and hurt somebody to be heard I can say it and what we tell people is, even if you don't say it right, even if you say it clumsy, even if you say it, uh, it doesn't come out right, say it first. Get it out. And then let's figure out how do we practice on saying it differently? How do you practice so people can hear you? And it's been a, an amazing process. And I would invite people, if you want to see Thursday evening, the community meeting action, to come up and uh, give me a call and we can set it up. Okay, open the floodgates here, people <laughs> coming. Yes. So I'm curious now about some of the learning that's taken place, including learning about the complexity. I, I remember you said that and the different layers of complexity that people have reintegrating into society. But any of the learnings that have come out for any of you in the process of going through this PAR activity? Maybe I'll start with uh, measuring success. And I think we also then have many examples that Rebecca and Stan perhaps can fill in with. Mm -hmm. um, for me, one of the, the big learnings, and, and it it's I think it's really deeply understanding collaboration in a in a new way that as researchers we're trained to use a particular methodology we're trained to sort of hold back emotionally not to be too involved to be highly rational and I've found that in trying to maintain standards of research practice and at the same time be open to all the potential knowledge that's around us and all the experience that's around us, it's required sort of a constant self-reflection about how do we do this. And perfect examples when we talked about success, so we say, mm -hmm. well, and how does the culture um, impact on the success of people when they enter, re-enter society? Alrighty, I hope you all enjoyed that lovely conversation uh, between the Fortune Society and AC4. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Monday Morningside. Once again, I am so excited to be your new host. The time is 9.30. Um, this has been Macy Hanslick-Barron. Happy Monday.